Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 119 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a brilliant songwriter with a social conscience second to none who has become the guy documentary filmmakers turn to when they need great music for their work. Only six songs from documentaries ever have been nominated for the Best Original Song Oscar, and only one person was a creator of more than one of them. My guest, Jay Ralph, who was nominated for the tunes Before My Time from 2013's Chasing Ice and Manta Ray from 2015's Racing Extinction, both pertaining to the effects of climate change. The 41-year-old, whose real first name is Josh, wasn't always associated with docs. In fact, he first specialized in hip-hop beats, which got him signed at just 22 to one of the biggest deals that Atlantic Records ever had granted to a new artist. Over the time since, he has crafted music for countless commercials through his music production company, The Rumor Mill, which has helped to enable him to devote the rest of his time to music about which he feels even more passionate and that has the potential to make a difference. Other great docs to which he's contributed music include 2009's Man on Wire and 2010's The Cove, both of which went on to win the Best Documentary Feature Oscar, as well as 2012's Helen Back Again and 2015's Virunga, both of which were nominated for it. This year, he may well pick up a record-extending third Oscar nomination for a doc, namely Jim, the James Foley story an HBO film about a freelance American war correspondent who was killed in Syria in 2014. For it, Ralph and Sting teamed up and created the song The Empty Chair, which already received a Best Original Song Critics' Choice Award nomination. Over the course of an extensive conversation at Ralph's home in Malibu, he and I talk about how a white kid from New York wound up obsessed with and creating music for some of the greatest black hip-hop artists of our time what led to his big record deal and the challenges he faced in the years after signing it, why he's elected to work on so many docs, as well as on narrative films like Spike Jonze's Her, and why the doc Jim had such a profound impact on him and Sting, even though it's about a man they've never met and never will meet, that they were inspired to create The Empty Chair, a beautiful tribute to him. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Josh, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. It's my honor, bro. So where were you born and raised, and, and what did your folks do for a living? Yeah, I grew up in New York and Long Island, and my mom was an incredibly inspiring mom. She, she raised my brother and I, and my dad was a pharmacist and loved music, loved arts, and it was a very inclusive family. They She always encouraged creativity, my mom. Mm-hmm. And she always encouraged exploration and always encouraged, you know, reaching beyond your wildest, you know, imagination. And your personal interest in passion for music, how did that start? I don't know. You know, it's, it's intoxicating uh, potion when you hear it. You know, some people it's more utilitarian. Some people it's cerebral you know, the lyrics, but my way was always like in the cartoons when there's like the, the, the smoke of something going and then it's like, it, it, you know, entrances someone and you lose almost all control to resist. That's what it's always been for me. You know, this elusive force that's unexplainable. And your family was not, from what I understand, particularly well off. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as, a, as a result, something kind of amazing happen that I've heard about, which is that 
your mother reached out to someone and it kind of provided you with your first tools to get into this. So can you share? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to play guitar more than anything. You know, growing up in Long Island, everybody was in a hair metal band. I had like a afro and so that wasn't like gonna work for me (laughs) so i was like man maybe maybe i could be a drummer but that was a lot of coordination and i I loved guitar so much you know but she couldn't afford to buy me a guitar and i wanted an electric guitar but then the the people at the guitar center they were like no 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 you want you want to learn on acoustic guitar because it's so much harder i'm like well that 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 doesn't sound great (laughs) you know but if you could play an acoustic guitar then you'll really be able to play electric guitar really well so I, I was like, you know, at this point, I, I want any guitar because I want to play guitar so badly. And she wrote to Ovation Guitars because, you know, at that time, it was every metal band played an Ovation, you know. She said, my son loves music more than anything. And, you know, I can't afford to get him a guitar. Can you, can you do anything about that? And I just remember this guitar showed up at the house. And I, I just played that till it was, you know, threadbare. <laughs> and, you know, really really taught myself how to how to play and and so it's just an amazing how one you wonder how your life might have been different had that not shown up one day yeah they could have sent me like a slide rule and a and a and yeah. some sort of protractor right. yeah yeah it'd be very different so you taught yourself how to use that guitar you eventually taught yourself how many other instruments well just i mean i i love sounds and you know there are masterful masterful players in the world that really studied these instruments and know how to make them come to life but i just have a kind of fun relationship with them i can play certain things you know fairly well to write and to make sounds that i think are interesting so it's piano and bass and guitar and drums and you know different synthesizers and effects but really these are all just inroads and starting points to tell a story and mostly, I like to take things away because it's really all about the voice and the singer. And if it's instrumental, then it would be the melody line. And that's the most important thing. So you're just trying to find ways to say that in the most engaging way, you know, for me. Is it true that just because you, you have such an eclectic understanding of so many different instruments and sounds, sound making devices... How many can you actually, in terms of actually reading or writing music? Well, I don't read or write music. That's what amazes me. Yeah. So I just play by ear. Piano always trips me out because I've been playing guitar my whole life. But then when I play piano and start coming up with these weird chords and then being able to play arpeggios and I don't understand really how or why my fingers would go to these different parts and you kind of like figure out different patterns, but I don't know what the keys are. I don't know what the notes are you know, and it's a very strange process. I, I always remember that Keith Richards thing for satisfaction where he like played the riff and like blacked out in a drunken stupor and then woke up because he didn't know what happened last night. And there was a tape recorder tied around his neck and he hit play and it was the, the riff to satisfaction. <laughs> and I relate to that without the, the blackout right. part because I just get so enraptured by the sounds and fall in love with with some kind of pattern or some kind of harmony and then wake up the next day and have no idea what it was and and then hit play and then I'm like whoa that's that's pretty cool like so that's how you replicate your recording it as you do it yeah and then and then try to like figure out what I did 
you know, because I don't, I, I want, you know, sometimes it's easier because it, um, I can play in MIDI, you know, MIDI's a synthesizer language, you know, a musical electronic language that transcribes the notes and the pressure of the notes into the actual musical notes so you can record what you're playing and use that information. But it's not always fun to play a MIDI instrument because it's not an acoustic instrument. It doesn't give you back the same musicality. So, you know, it's it's always an, a, a, an uncharted adventure. Every time I sit down, I never know what I'm going to get back. It's not something I can set out and try to write and, and do it. It doesn't really work that way for me. Well, let's go back and talk about how, how you got to this point with, with this being your style and approach and all of that. You started working in hip-hop studios when you were very young, huh? Yeah, How yeah. did that start? I just was, uh, you know, obsessed with the sound. You know, it was, the, it was the most rawest, visceral music that I had heard, really. I mean, it was so immediate and so connected to the artist. There was almost no intermediary to translate the, the intent. So you had the hip-hop beat you know, the producer, whoever made whatever the track they were doing, and then the MC. And it was it was like, you know, almost like, you, you know, like you look at like a bull rider, get, you know, racing to get out of that stall. Like, and that's what every time a, a great hip hop track sounded like. And so I was, you know, I used to go there and there was a, a studio around the corner from my house called Rock and Reel Studios. And this is where again? In, in, in East Northport in Long Island. Dave Greenberg was the engineer and he did all these. It was like it was so strange because it was so bland, the neighborhood. You couldn't pick it out of a a lineup. But around the corner, they're doing, you know, EPMD and, and Redman and, and Keith Murray and like all these archetypal MCs from the kind of golden age of the of hip hop in the late 80s, early 90s. And they were, it was all being recorded around the corner. And it was, it was you know, in, in between, you know, Pathmark and, and Wallbounds and Barnes and & Noble. It, it, just, it was a strange juxtaposition. And you're just going in there, what, after school? Yeah, and I would just kind of go over and want to, like, figure out how, how, how it was. I was always making my own recordings. And I, I guess I must have called Dave and asked him if I can come be an assistant or helper or anything. I just wanted to be around it, you know. And then I ended up getting into University of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to play around with the cameras because I love making little abstract videos. But the only way you could get a camera is if you were like involved with the TV station. So I ended up figuring out how to like get involved with the TV station. And they were like, oh. And then I realized that you, you'd get a pass to, to the concerts to go cover the concerts. I was like, well, this is great. <laughs> and now I like interview all the musicians. and, and uh, Who are some of them? Well, uh, that was Supercat. At that point, uh, Diggable Planets, there was a concert. I remember we went to the Nirvana concert at Buffalo. And then there was this one night I start interviewing Chuck D from from Public Enemy. And and we're talking and he's kind of surprised. I know so much about hip hop. I was so consumed with hip hop at this point, listening to it almost exclusively. So so like around the clock. And he's like, what do you what are you doing here? You know, in Buffalo, like you're making hip hop beats and all this stuff. It's so crazy. So that's where I got in, you know, you know, <laughs> no money to go anywhere else. And, you know, we got here, financial aid and da da da. And I'm trying to study film and I'm doing making, you know, little movies and stuff. He's like, really, you want to make movies? And he's like, you want to direct a video for me? And I'm like, really? And, I, and he's like, yeah. He's like, you sound like you really got like good ideas and like really 
you know, you're an interesting guy. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to, man. You know? And he's like, all right, cool. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. He's such a nice guy. And then the next day I, you know, I woke up and I went to breakfast and then came back and my roommate was like, uh, some woman, Heidi Smith from Def Jam or something called, like, she said, you're doing some video. I was like, what? <laughs> like, and then like, so now I'm like, you know, cause I was telling him I'm making movies and I'm like trying to like look at the storyboards for like, the, I still have them somewhere, you know, wow. for like the, I have the, the facts for the public enemy brief with the little public enemy logo and my like hand-drawn storyboards that look like like a like a like an axe murderer or something like that it's like they're so you you couldn't decipher anything out of them and they were like trying to book travel and then it turned out that chuck they were going on tour to i think africa and there was no margin of error like they had a few days to shoot the video and i think it was either russell or lior who i didn't know at the time but mm-hmm. those were the names that that they were like they really don't want to take a chance on an, an unknown first-time director right now, you know, because he doesn't have time to do any reshoots if nothing happens. So we're gonna have to do it another time. And I was like, all right, you know, that's cool. But and so Chuck apologized, you know. But I was like, that's so cool. And then I ended up transferring to NYU and hanging out at Def Jam every day. Oh my god! And they, it was almost like I worked there. I would come because I remember there was this like there was a desk like it was kind of high up, and this girl would sit there. And these doors that were magnetic, you know, you couldn't open them. And I would come and they would just buzz it every time. They thought, they literally thought I worked there. I knew everyone. I would carry this knapsack of tapes with beats on them. And I'd make all the beats. I really like, it's the only thing I did at NYU. I would just make hip hop beats. I mean, I have video of me like sitting there with a boom box playing it for Method Man. He's like rapping over the beats. He's like, oh, that's so dope, man. That's crazy. And it was just like, it was really incredible, inspiring time. And then it became very frustrating because for one reason or another, I could never get anyone to rap on the beats because they wanted to either own the beats or something. I was like, nah, I can't sell it. I need the producer credit because I, I don't care about the money, but right. like I need, you know, I want, because I, I always looked up to the producers because they made the coolest sounds, you know, the, the hip hop producers and all the And these guys DJ, wouldn't give DJ it up. Premier. Well, I think like, you know, Meth, Method Man was always like, oh, Reza always works at it, but we could like buy the beat and then like Reza will do something or some kind of thing like that. And I was like, nah, I'll just keep it. And I ended up, you know, just being like, wow, what am I going to do? And, and I, I never was a singer. I didn't even really write lyrics. And I was like, I guess I'll just sing over this stuff, you know, and, and see what happens. And I just started singing over these like weird kind of hip hop, New York hip hop beats. And it was like this brief moment in time in like 95, 96, where the Chemical Brothers were just coming out and Prodigy and... It was kind of like a faceless sound at that point. Like, you know, there wasn't a real identity to the music. And then I just was coming at it from a different approach where I wanted to make, you know, kind of songs, but with those sounds. And and Jason Flom heard the demo. Jason Flom from Atlantic Yeah, from, from Lava Atlantic. And I was not at the meeting. The guy who was co-producing the record with me, this guy, Louis Scalise, really great dude. He brought it in and he said, Jason played 20 seconds of the song and he's like, bring that kid in here. I'll, I'll give him whatever record deal he wants. That's a, that's a winner, that song. Wow. And I was like... What was the name of that song? It was called Baby. It was the first thing I had ever written. I was like, I hated the song at that point. You know, By the time we recorded the demo, I was like, this song sucks. And it really was something I had been messing around with when I was younger and then made these other beats around it. But he really loved it. I didn't really know anything about Lava. I wanted to go to Maverick or one of these kind of, you know, weird labels with Beck or something like that, you know, and 
And I met with Jason and he had all these like kind of newer bands that I didn't really know about. And I was just like, yeah, man, I just, you know, and I was like, what else did you sign? And he's like, ah, well, the other stuff you probably wouldn't like. It was a lot of 80s stuff. And I was like, what? And he basically listed like every 80s band, Winger, White Lion, (laughs) Skid Row. And I was like, dude, this is the guy we got to go with this guy. He's the coolest guy ever. Now, at that time, were there countering offers from others? Well, it's a crazy story. I had taken the demo up to K-Rock in New York and dropped it off. And then they, they, they started playing it on, on the radio. I mean, it almost sounds crazy because it was such a different time. Like, that would never even happen now. No. You know, there's, everything's programmed and corporate and all this stuff. And how old were you again at this point? Like 21. Yeah, 21. Yeah, 22, 21. So you've got a guy here that's ready to throw a lot of money at you. And it was not an absolute yes immediately. No, no. It, at that point, there were other people. But as soon as he, like, I understood that he had signed all those 80s bands that were kind of my formative years yeah i was like this guy's so cool and he was he was always so cool and still to this day he's my best friend i mean he's everything that i've done i owe to jason you know every opportunity he's backed every thing you know sometimes i feel bad because i'm almost like the woody allen of of this (laughs) music side here like where they they he just keeps paying for stuff and it never returns the investment, but but it's like all these like interesting kind of weird projects. Right, it's prestige side of things. I, right? I don't know, but him and all those guys and Monty and Avery Lipman at, at Universal, like they've been very kind. I mean, they've really, this is, these last years are not years where people waste a dollar, let alone supporting, you know, these kind of projects and helping put the soundtracks out to help gain awareness for the stories and different things and well let's go back though so you're 22 you signed this deal with with atlantic yeah and so he's like i won't even come down to the studio i just think you're super creative dude and i love you know your whole vibe that you guys got going on and you i'll just give you whatever you want within reason you know you just tell me and he makes this this awesome deal and lets me produce the record lets me direct the videos and i just go buy all the gear I ever wanted and spend a year exploring music in this abandoned vaudeville theater on the Lower East Side and just really figuring out what I want to say musically. And there was no pressure from him. He was just the coolest dude, you know. And at the end of that year, it's 1999, you come out with your debut album, Music to Mosner. Why is it called that? There, well, so, okay, so that relates to the J. Ralph thing. So there were a few Joshes in, in college, in, in our core group. There was me, and there was Josh Klausner. It was another one, and there was a few other ones. But basically, when, when someone would say, Josh, four people would turn around, so we needed a different way to differentiate everybody. So I became <laughs> J. Ralph, you know, Josh Ralph. And Mausner, Josh Klausner, was Mausner after, like, some police academy reference, like, you know, Lieutenant Mausner or something like that. I don't know. And so... That's kind of how that happened. And Mausner was just kind of this, he was just this like irreverent and incredibly disruptive fellow at that time to anyone he would come in contact with and super unique fella, super talented. And, you know, we were like this, you know, that kind of energy and that type of punk rock attitude, like that's. It's got to be music to Mausner by because, you know, like, you know, <laughs> we were just kind of out of our minds at that point. But we did that. And it was this whole, you know, pastiche of all these different styles, everything I had always listened to, all the different records that I had, you know, picked up at the Salvation Army and all these different, you know, 
sounds all thrown into a blender, you know, coming out the other side. And then as a antithetical to all the craziness, the last song was this, I want to envision this big orchestral piece. And Jason was so supportive. Yeah, let's get a giant orchestra. And we get most of the players from the New York Philharmonic. And he's like, well, how, how are you going to put this together? I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe we got to get like a conductor or something or an arranger or somebody to help get the music. Because I had played the whole yeah. thing out linearly, you know, the, the melody and the chords. But, you know, we got to set it in the orchestra. And I'd always been a great fan of this composer, Carter Burwell, another New York guy. Also didn't know how to really read or write music, taught himself. And I was like, this guy sounds really cool and his music's awesome. We reached out to him. And this was before he was doing all the Coen Brothers movies, right? Or no, had he started? He, he had, I guess it probably was around the time you'd have to check yeah. the details. But I know he had done Miller's Crossing, maybe even Fargo. Okay, so yeah, there were a few. And so he had a whole mantra that anytime someone asked him to do something that he had never done before, he pretty much always would, always would say yes. He was like a, a great mentor then because his whole thing, it was don't be afraid of like, you know, the orchestral classical formality of it all. Like anything's possible. We could do anything. A lot of the other people you would meet were very, you know, stoic and kind of standoffish and protective of this knowledge. It was like a private esoteric knowledge, you know? And he wasn't like that. He, he was like, you know, anything's possible, any, any sounds. And it's just this beautiful opportunity to make, you know, this lush arrangement of, of a melody. And, and it was so great to watch that come to life, even though it was the same melody. It was so radically different. And I still listen to it and discover new things that he did. I mean, because he was, you know, he's a master composer arranging something that I had done and conducting it. And he was just so gracious about the whole thing. You know, he would try after each take with, is that what you're hearing? Were you looking for something different? I mean, just the total mensch. And I liken him to a modern day Bernard Herman. I mean, he's mm-hmm. one of the greats. Yeah. So this first album comes out. How was it received? And how did you receive that reception? Well, remember, I, I was like, couldn't believe the whole thing because I was never, I never played one show. Right. I wasn't a performer. Right. And so I wanted to be a hip hop producer. So I loved being in the studio. It was almost like, Steely Dan or something. So I was just like, these guys are crazy. They're giving me all this money, putting me on MTV. I, I'm, I don't even play out. I don't even do anything. And so it was like going, going, going. And, you know, I remember all the press was coming out and everything. And then I, I was like, at that point, so obsessed with the orchestral track. And I was just listening to all, voraciously anything I could get my hands on. Just all, you know, going back and revisiting all the film music and then all the great classical people that I never knew and was like really wanting to make an orchestral album, you know, because, again, I I was just always doing it for me. And at that point, you know, it was really interesting time at Lava because Jason was at the pretty much the top, top, top at the of the record business at the time. He had signed Matchbox 20 and Edwin McCain and Jill Solbuel and just had signed Kid Rock. And at that time, the, the four signings were me, Kid Rock, John Bryan, and David Garza. And, you know, it was just, I think, like, me and John and David were the kind of strange outliers. Kid Rock was very much in line with the massive success stuff that Jason was doing. And he was kind of pushing all of us. And then Kid Rock was clearly the front runner and was the right decision for Jason because I didn't play out, you know, and... John's stuff was incredibly amazing and, and, and beautifully complex and, and unique. And, and David's stuff was very progressive lyrically and musically. 
And I don't think any of us would have had that type of reach. You know, at one point, the label, it was like, okay, we only have a finite amount of resources. You know, we can't just be spending millions on everybody. They put their eggs in the in the Kid Rock basket and it paid off immensely. I mean, I think he sold 12, 15 million records that first record. Or something. And so in putting their eggs in that basket, did that mean that, that after that first album, you guys were now parted ways? Or how did no, that no, work? No, no, Jason was like... It's so strange. I don't know why this is not the biggest record. And I'm like, I could tell you why, because I, I don't really play out. Like, yeah. I don't know. What this is like weird hip hop stuff. Like, but he was so, he would push it and push it and push it. And he's he he'll never take no for an answer from any of the radio people. And it was like blowing up. And he's just like, maybe we'll just let's start the second record because it was a two record deal. And I remember, you know, it was, it, you know, he he just never wanted to let it go. And and I started the second record, and then. But by that point, I was already, I had discovered very immensely Dylan and Leonard Cohen. And I was like, wow, this is like really where it's at, you know, not, not the production. So I almost like the whole second record became this anti-production thing where it was very acoustic, very stripped down. And how very long intimate. did this take? I just was years, years right? in the studio. Yeah. And then just like five years, maybe something like that. And then, you know, was at the same time working on my record and then also working on this orchestral music. Also, at the same time, the label was like trying to figure something out or the publisher was trying to figure something out because they gave us some big advance. And they were like, hey, this commercial wants to license this song that you you put forth as one of the demos for your record. And I was like, OK, what's that all about? And they're like, it's Volvo. It's directed by Sam Bayer, who did Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I was like, well, OK, what's that all about? They're like, well, they'll give you one hundred fifty thousand. I was like, really? <laughs> I was like, that's crazy. Like, I mean, so much money. Right. And. I didn't get that money because it went to go recoup the advance towards the ad advance that, that Jason and the publisher gave. But I was like, this is an, an insane amount of money. And for all these creative people that are working, I mean, because at the time, Fincher's working in commercials and Mark Romanek and, and just all these interesting like directors. Yeah, yeah or, everyone. Yeah. yeah. And and I was like, wow. And, and my friends were like, it was a strange time in music because nobody wanted to touch commercials with a 10 foot pole. You know, because so, they felt it was selling out or what? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, how if if, it, if the music's inspired and these are the directors, then how is it selling out? Right. I mean, it's just, you know, I guess I had the naive benefit of my music because I, I always owned it. We, we never sold the music. So it was always investing me and my crew of, you know, Arthur Pingree and Jay Israelson and Brian Binzak and Chris Halleck was in at that point. I mean, it started off just me, but expanded. And I always felt... It was a vital form of communication, meaning if an album took a year and a half to record and mix and master and then wait for the schedule to get out, whatever spark idea you had then is a year and a half at least old. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a commercial, on a Monday, you can have an idea. And on Thursday, it's broadcasting to millions and millions of people, like some weird subversive beat. And that would happen with like, you know, Volkswagen. They really pushed the envelope to, to like, I was working and trying to finish that record, but I couldn't really get my head around that. And I was like, Jason, can I do this orchestral album? I've been really meditating on this thing. And Sony Classical wanted to sign the album, but I was already signed to Atlantic. And so then that was like this whole crazy departure where they gave me a waiver and I was going to be on Sony Classical and Atlantic at the same time, which was really, that was really nuts. Like I, it was a really tough thing to, to, to do. And then I remember that we were working almost ready to release that record. And then September 11th happened and then turned the whole world upside down. And everybody was, you know, just reevaluating everything. And 
we ended up not doing that record and then continued working on the on my record and trying out different other producers because Jason was like, look, I let you produce your whole record. I let you produce, direct the video and produce the, the, the whole second record. And now we're like on a third version of the second record. Can we just try a couple other producers? And I said, of course. I mean, you know, you know, at least I can do. And at the end, I was just like, listen, man, you know, I love you to death. You've been family to me and you every realize every dream. But I don't think we should just keep spending money because I'm going further away from what you need. You know, and I'm looking at orchestral stuff. I'm looking at other languages. I'm looking at folk music. Mm -hmm. And it's so different than what you signed. And he's like, are you sure? I mean, I'm giving you the opportunity to play stadiums. And the type of stuff that you're describing is, you know, you'll be playing at Hotel Cafe or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And I was like, I, I just, that's just, that's where it's taking me. So I have to follow it. And I you know, love you to death. And we've remained best of friends. And he's, you know, supported every project since. But that's kind of where that shook out. And I never ended up finishing the second record. Right. And the orchestral album, he ended up releasing as really? another thing. Like, oh, he's always supported everything. I mean, he's really just a, a mensch. That, and know. in the meantime, though, what you what you learned from having that first song licensed for a commercial was that you know, this, this might be a, a, another thing to be doing on the side. Totally. Right? And I was, you know, cause I love also working. Like I love the pressure of working and I love the stakes of the, of the commercials. They were really interesting because you know, you're basically, it's the opposite of the entertainment business in this. It's, it's backwards in the entertainment business, whether it's music or movies, you have a lot of people saying, is this honest? Is this good? Is this going to sell tickets? Are people going to like this? So you have 50 opinions second guessing the core of the art being like, I don't know if you should say that. I don't know if that should be the chorus. I don't know if we should cast that person. Maybe we should cut that scene. Maybe 10 people won't like it. In commercials, they were like, I got to get somebody to buy a $100,000 car. So I need something completely authentic that they're going to connect with in 30 seconds. And so that was a really interesting challenge because it's the opposite. It wasn't... you this would is the Volkswagen one. Well, just all the commercials. Yeah. yeah, because they're like, you basically, it's not by committee. It's almost, we were afforded this opportunity to be like, dude, we trust you. We know you've got your finger on the pulse of like, you know, cool sounds and interesting stuff. So if you tell us that's cool, we're going to go with it and see if it works. And they weren't looking to micromanage the music front, you know. So eventually you started the rumor mill which is your own music production company and which has produced a lot of these songs for or music for commercials but i think even prior to the start of the rumor mill talk about this this i want to come back to the volkswagen one because this commercial big day which aired during the 2001 super bowl was sort of so outside the box that and that it, it really shook up a lot of people and a lot of things and it ran for three years which never happens for Commercials. So take that as, a, as an example, if you can, of of what you do with commercials. Well, that was a testament to Volkswagen's people at the time. They were it was Arnold Advertising, and they had this incredible group of talented people, super educated, super smart, super in the know. And I remember they they found a demo of something that I had done of a hip hop track that I was working on, and they were like, "This is awesome. We want to put this on the air." I'm like, "That's not even finished," and they, and they were like. Sounds cool. It's raw. We like it. And I was like, that's crazy. I was like, well, <laughs> let me, I had, I always wanted to put this operatic vocal on it. And, and there's this awesome singer in New York, Nicole Renaud. And I ended up putting the vocal on with her. And that was what ended up airing. 
but they were incredibly progressive and they always wanted to push the envelope. You know, that was a prototype for what I was imagining could be like a new form of operatic orchestral music with beats. And then that devolved from there because the, the Big Day one had electronic beats. And I was like, well, what if we replicate that sound with organic instruments and acoustic instruments, but keep the swing, keep the funk and keep pushing that, you know, paradigm and then that devolved into just kind of more arrangements and melodies but all those commercials were paying for me to experiment with these orchestras and I'd go to Prague and I'd hire the New York Philharmonic players again in New York and just kept trying to do this and by the end of it I had a whole record and then you know it was all like almost every song on the record was licensed to commercials before the record was even released so you would then put out a record you're saying with all the songs that you had made for that were they were made for commercials. They weren't necessarily made for commercials. No, only like the big day was not even made for a commercial either. It was just licensed into it. But, they but were, your end goal was always, this is always going to be in an, an album, album, whether or not anybody wants it for a commercial. Right. And as it turned out, you your sound was appealing to a lot of people that were doing commercials. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And and they just, I don't know, it was it had like a big kind of nostalgic sweeping sound. How many commercials would you say you provided music for? Maybe... I don't know. I'd have to look. I'd probably somewhere between five and seven hundred. It's amazing. I mean, not just all me. I mean, with the whole crew, with Arthur and this is the rumor and, mill, yeah, 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 production company. So the other thing that I guess they they helped to make financially possible was your ability to then go and take on social issue documentaries that were saying things that were important to you and that needed. Great music, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, there was a huge void in documentary at that point, Start, you know, starting with Man on Wire, because before that, you didn't really have many people paying attention to documentaries. Uh, you know, obviously, the intelligentsia and people that wanted to be informed were, but it was a completely different format. You had to either go to a theater, an independence chain, and watch it, or I guess, you know, get a videotape or something. But it's not, there was, you know, obviously, it's such a different world now with Netflix and, and iTunes and Amazon and all the YouTube and everything. So there, there's a few different things that, you know, collide with each other. You have the democratization of the equipment. So the Canon 5D comes out and changes forever what it looks like for an independent filmer to make a film. Mm -hmm. And you then have these like collapsing barriers of social media and, and YouTube and all this stuff. So everybody's window into life almost becomes the verite becomes the norm it's not a different thing so these big kind of giant movies those are always still gratifying to, to a large section of the population but now you watch something that might be rougher and it, you don't look at it like that you're watching a, a a rough indie thing you just look at it as a moment right. and so once the the equipment becomes democratized and once people's barrier to accept other things as worthy, meaning other production techniques or different performances, it's radically changing everything. And then lastly, I think when you've seen so many personal moments on Instagram or YouTube or Twitter, all these different formats, the bar gets raised so high for people to engage because they're living you know, into windows of real people's lives doing real things or real moments that are unfiltered. So it takes the very, very best of actors to kind of even approach replicating something like that. 
it's a whole interesting yeah and that was so as this was all happening is this happened to be when you provided music for a documentary for the first time and that as you say that was man on wire how did that even come about i was working on james marsh's movie called the king and there was a music supervisor that had brought me on that was a very big supporter of the music, Karen Rackman, from the beginning. She's like a kind of iconic music supervisor. She did like Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs. I was scoring the whole movie and something happened where she left the production or there was some kind of disagreement or something. I don't remember, but I was like, hey, unless you guys work that out with her, I'd feel uncomfortable staying on because she kind of brought me in. And then I, I don't know, I, I'm just a very loyal person like that. And basically, I just didn't end up doing the film, but I had always remained close with with James. I always thought he was a talented guy. Ran into him on the street. I was working on Lucky Number Eleven at the time. Mm-hmm. That's I, a narrative. Yeah, the kind of first big movie one. And he's like, "What's going on, man?" And he's, "Oh, I'm just working." I think I I might have been with the director uh, Paul McGuigan. And I said, "What are you doing?" You know. And he said, "Well, I'm doing this movie on Philippe Petit." And I was like, "He was already one of my." great inspirations because I saw him in the Ken Burns New York you know miniseries yeah and I was like oh my god that would be so incredible I would I would do anything to be involved in that and 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 he's like well I I would love to have you but there's not really any music it's mostly old scores from Michael Nyman movies because that's what Philippe used to walk to and originally Michael was going to adapt some stuff but again nobody's valuing documentary at this point it's just kind of like he's like yeah you can use the music whatever and i think james is so polite and and so gracious that he didn't want to like push michael nyman to really start adapting things and because nobody's checking for documentaries but philippe was the coolest and i was like well james if you need any help and he called me up one day he's like listen he's like there's this the entire recreation section of the film you know that's intercut because it's basically three sections there's the talking heads there's the archival footage and there are the recreations he goes i i need like a definitive movie score for this that it's not working from just putting the licensed music there can you score it can you can you write the original music and i was like dude done you know and and we we just worked on it and now this movie goes on and wins the best documentary feature oscar and what is suddenly everyone knows you as the guy no not yet no and then and then i end up like you know and then it was just like wow like all my friends like wow i can't believe i was involved in an oscar movie that's so crazy like you know (laughs) and then end up doing the cove just a year later yeah the year later also wins it wins and i was like wow this is really this is crazy (laughs) like documentaries and then you know I, i guess people just started taking notice we really killed ourselves to put a lot of time into into that music i mean i owe a huge debt of gratitude to to Arthur Pingry, who produced all this stuff with me and helped arrange the music. I mean, you know, this, this is like brutal, thankless stuff programming those instruments because they never have any any great money on the films. And we didn't really take a fee or anything. We just put all the money on the screen for them to help raise the awareness for these projects. But to help get those sounds, we utilized all of our years of production and synthesis and programming to help create these big, giant sounds for these films to help make a more immersive environment. But it was, you know, hundreds of hours you know taking time to program it to make it sound like everything that we would know as a film score and be this kind of immersive environment yeah so just so people can get a sense of how much has happened in such a relatively short amount of time man on wire was in 2009 the cove was 2010 and then these are all other important documentaries just in the years since then 
Helen Baggian comes out in 2012, gets nominated for Best Documentary Feature Oscar. Chasing Ice comes out in 2013 and is not nominated for the Documentary Feature Oscar, but brings you your first nomination for Best Original Song. This is a song before my time that Scarlett Johansson performed the lyrics and and Joshua Bell, I guess, accompanying her. 2015, Varunga, end title song, We Will Not Go. And then Racing Extinction, 2015 as well. And Vivian Mayer in there somewhere. And Vivian Mayer, <laughs> which I guess is different in the sense that it's not like these others, a social issue. Well, I always movie. say I kind of bifurcate my interest. It either has to have an incredibly strong social imperative right. or an incredibly engaging artist that was overlooked. So that's why you find the Philippe. Yeah. That's why you find Vivian Mayer. And I, to some extent, I think Meru, you know, yes. uh, Jimmy and, and those guys, one. because I like to help recognize people that are realizing the impossible dream, you know, whatever that means, whether it's help save the world or help help to create beauty or or challenges. You know, we're all in a grind. You know? Yeah. And, and lest anyone think that you only do docs, you in the meantime, also wrote a song for Spike Jones's narrative movie, Her, which was well, not... Well, I just produced that song. Karen, that song. Yeah, Karen wrote the song. It was very funny because that song got nominated. Yes. But it was just like kind of part of the film. Karen and Spike wrote this song. And Scarlett, which is interesting, you know, kind of trivia fact, she sings, you know, Before My Time, which that song gets nominated. For and then Chasing she Ice. sings yeah. the song in Her right after that. Which gets nominated again, yeah, you know, and it's, but it's in the film. But there was never a song because it's just a performance on screen between the two actors, right. and there was never a song that anyone could hear or listen to. So Karen and I hooked up, and I ended up producing that song with her and a duet with her and Ezra Koenig, and I, I think I played guitar on oh, it or that's something. That's great. And so just the trivia, as you say, Scarlett Johansson has performed two back to back, back to back years Oscar nominated songs. So let's zero in on the two for which you've received Oscar nominations, which, by the way, there have only been six songs that have been nominated for after being featured in a documentary feature. Yeah, six songs from Docs. Two of them are courtesy of J. Ralph. <laughs> so nobody else has multiple. The first one, as we mentioned, Before My Time, Chasing Ice. Talk about that one. I mean, that was, you know, I was trying to give a relatable, emotional connection to climate change i wanted people to be able to meditate on all that they had seen in that film you know a lot of these films same kind of theme heavy stuff how am i going to get people to want to connect that's you want to plant the seed to help people connect and scarlet is a world-class singer i was always blown away by her voice and i just thought she would be incredible for this and it was, you know, just the kind of... So you went to her for this. Because yeah, she's yeah. obviously it's a doc. She's not featured in the doc. It just happened that you said... Yeah, I said, I think she'd be great to sing. And, I, you know, she's a friend. And, and I called her up. And, you know, she came down to the studio. And she's like, yeah, it sounds cool. And then, you know, Josh is somebody else I knew. New York's a very small place. And, and you know, like-minded people tend to kind of run together and find each other. Called up Josh. I was like, hey, man, this is this is, I think, a really cool thing we could do together. He came down, really loved the song, loved her performance. I mean, his his mastery of, of the instrument is just beyond anything imaginable. Yeah, I didn't have any expectations. I mean, I, I lived in New York, didn't have a manager, didn't have an agent, didn't have any connection really to Hollywood. So it's it's 
it was incredibly surprising to see because you know I I had grown up watching that show as almost everybody else. Yeah, you, for sure. Yeah, you kind of you kind of it just seems like some monolithic, unapproachable like thing that that it's how could something so small get recognized? But it, it, it we were very lucky and, yeah. and people recognized it and they saw the the power of the film and I think there's no greater marketing campaign for a climate doc than hurricane sandy like everybody was like saying ah this this stuff's not real like this whole thing is you know nobody was really checking for the doc it was kind of doing well and and then hurricane sandy happened like new york was like underwater and all this crazy stuff and they were like wow and they're like well why don't you go check out this film because it kind of explains why we're all underwater right now (laughs) and then just two years later is racing extinction which is another kind of call to action this is a reunion with Luis Ayoyos, with whom you had done The Cove. Manta Ray, which again gets an Oscar nomination, was sort of inspired by coming back to your interest in different, you know, kind of random sounds. Didn't you hear something sort of like a endangered species yeah. sound? Louis had invited me up to the Cornell Bioacoustic Laboratory where they played me a recording of a male OO bird. And you just hear this kind of little bird and he's showing me on the screen and you see the waveform of the bird, you know, making its little chirping sound. And what he explains to me is that the male OO sings a song and they mate for life. And it's a call and a response with the mate. And you can almost hear the stress vulnerability in the call. It's not definitive because there's no response. And they said, what you're listening to is the last male of a species singing a mating call for a female mate that will never come. And I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's really heavy, man. You know? And, and I knew then that the score had to be kind of an answer to this call and it was inspired by that bird call. And so the entire melody of all of the music and the chords were kind of based around that bird call and the musicality of that bird call to kind of honor the loss because the bird's now extinct Mm. And wanted to kind of keep that memory alive and the hope of that and reached out to Anoni. Who people just, just so they can make the connection, formerly known as Anthony from Anthony and the Johnstons. That's right. right. And yep. you guys have been friends. Yeah, also a friend from New York. We had the first, at one point, didn't know him and reached out to him for a documentary that I was working on called Wretches and Jabbers. Very powerful film directed by an Oscar-winning director named Jerry Wurzberg. And... She made this incredible film about these two autistic adults that were kind of marginalized their whole life. They're 45. They were kind of, I think they were put in mental institutions for most of their life because at that time, 45 years ago, people didn't really understand what it was. And they were like, you know, just didn't treat them nicely. And they were given these pads to type on to see if they can create any type of language. And of course, as soon as they figured out how to type, it revealed this universe of emotion and poetry and language. So my hope was to take some of their words and bring them to life with some of the greatest singers in the world. And I ended up writing 20 songs for the film, you know, with all these incredible singers from Stephen Stills to Bob Weir from the Dead to Nora Jones, Carly Simon and Ben Harper and Vincent Gallo and Devondra Banhart and Vashti Bunyan, Judy Collins. I mean, it's literally a lot of different people. And then all stuff from overseas Lila Downs. So this was um, for the previous film that, that had been made. Right, and I had reached out and, and, and 
and we did a song for that together with Anthony, Anthony and the Johnsons. Yeah. And yeah. then now um, you're calling on uh, him at the time to come in. Well, Anoni is my favorite singer of all time. You know, I've never heard any voice for me that affects me quite like that. What is it about it? I just think it's a direct connection to the emotional core of her being is extraordinary. It's the most unfiltered and and raw translation of emotion into musical notes that I've experienced. The way the transition between the notes, the bends and the hairpin turns and the peculiar phrases and melodies I've just never heard anything like it. It's like a Nina Simone or Billie Holiday or, or, you know, some incredible jazz performance. But then at the same time, it's folk. At the same time, it's operatic. It's it's just transcendent. And so, as I recall, when I don't know if it was the producers or Louie or somebody from Racing Extinction wanted to sort of alter some of her lyrics, I guess. No, no. What happened was I played it for Louie. We were done. He was crying. And he's like, it's so beautiful. But Louie and Fisher... Fisher Stevens. Fisher Stevens were concerned that it was too sad for the film because they, you know, as producers of the film and as the filmmakers, as much, you know, Fisher and Louie always loved the song, but they were unsure it was right for the film because they felt the cove was so important, but not a lot of people saw the cove. Even though it's, I think, statistically the most awarded documentary or something like that yeah. of all time. Or yeah. It's like some crazy, it has like hundreds of awards from all over the world. But nobody saw it because they were all afraid of it. And it was, you know, perceived as to being, being too sad. So they said, we need, we want to uplift people. We want to inspire people to go out and change and, and, and stop the things that are going on and the problems with the world. And we're just concerned that it's going to be too heavy. I said, you're wrong. This is like, you know, this is one of the most inspiring pieces. You know, I'm sorry, we got to use it and fought and fought and fought for months and months and months. And they were like, Josh, we, we can't. We tried it in this spot. We tried it in that spot. We tried it here. We tried it there. We tried it over this scene. It's just, it's so, it's a real heavy song. And I'm like, man. And they're like, you know, did you want to try to revisit it with the, with someone else to, to kind of do more of an anthemic thing at the end. I'm like, not really. <laughs> and they were like, well, then we might have to, you know, get somebody else to do something. And I was like, well, let me, let me talk to Anoni. And well, at that point it was Anthony. Yeah. And I said, let me see, you know, cause I, I I'm, I'm going to leave it up to him. You know, I don't want to make that decision. I'm, I, I gave you what I thought was the ending of the film. And stop me if I'm jumping the gun, but wasn't there something about, like basically killing in the womb or something. Kill, uh, something. Oh, you're right. You're right. No, that you're right. It wasn't so much that they wanted to change the lyric. It was like you have a great memory, Scott. It was my children are dying inside right, of me. Right, right. And it was like a metaphor that she was singing, you know, for the world. And they were like, "That's just, the, man. You know, we're trying to get people like, you know, off and running out, and that's it's like really heavy." And I know because she said to me like, "Do you think it's too heavy?" you know, this song when I heard it coming, coming back through. And I was like, I'm not going to tell you what to change the lyrics, you know? And she's like, well, if it's too heavy, we should change it. And I was like, well, that's what you came up with. Cause I wrote the melody. She wrote the mm-hmm. lyrics. And I said, her thing at that point where she was at that moment was, I'm really tired of saying things euphemistically. I don't want to sugarcoat this. People need to feel uncomfortable. They need to feel the seriousness of it. They need to hear something that they don't want to hear. 
because this is affecting all of us and it's going to ruin everything if this is not changed. And so to put it in a metaphor and make it more abstract takes us further away from arresting the problem. And so, you know, that that started the, the, the path of, of, of it kind of falling out of the film. And I was despondent, but at the same time resilient that I knew I'd figure out a way to get it in there. I mean, I had to because the song was so incredibly beautiful and nobody was disputing that. It was just, you know, there was a, a brief moment of fear that it was going to capsize the whole project. And I said, look, they, you know, uh, they asked me if I could do an anthemic thing. I was thinking of doing something with Sia, but then I would never disrespect you like that because my it's for me, it's always the artist first mm-hmm. and and then, you know, even to my detriment or whatever. But I said, like, unless you want me to do it, you know, you know, to help the cause and I'll, tr- you know, I'll give you my word that it'll be the best shot that I'll get this song in there somehow. Like, it's not over yet. This is just a temporary. Let's leave it at a rest for a second. He said, "You have you have to do it. You have to go out. You know, you got to. You know, he he loves Sia's voice as well. And this is Anthony. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, we got to get the word out. That's the most important thing, you know. And so I, I had this other idea for an anthemic ending for the whole finale of the film, and we did it with Sia. But I always felt like this: you can't end on this note because the problem. Then it's, it's like we fixed the problem. We didn't fix anything yet, and so." The reason that Louis and Fisher wanted to change the format of this movie was problem solution, problem solution, problem mm-hmm. solution, not just problems and then expose it and like text something to, right. you know, the end of the film so that you can change it. He was like, I want to show people that it's not doom and gloom and there's a solution to all these problems and, and you guys are the solution. But I remember one day he brought one of the investors or something and then. I played the song, you know, I always kind of like would sneak it in every chance I had. Like, oh, wait, did, you, did, you, did Louis play you the song I did with Anoni? And she was like a big financier, I think, that was going to be paying for the, the event or something with the projections. The, the projections. And then she was crying when she heard the song. She goes, this, this is my, my favorite artist. Oh, my God, I can't believe he's in this film. Like, I'm definitely investing. I'm like, Louis, I told yeah. you. I told you. And then, and then and he's like, well, I never, you know, because he, he never denied the brilliance of right. her voice and, and the power of that. You know, he was just rightfully so. He's got a lot of money on the line and he, there's a lot big stakes beyond the money is, is the planet. And he really wanted to make sure that people saw the film. And I, and I said, like, let's bring him really high with, with, with the song with, with Sia, but let's remind them that it's not, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but there's real beauty in this, you know. So it's amazing because... We came that close to not having a song that ended up getting an Oscar nomination, even being the movie itself. So Manta Ray uh, lives on because of, of that. Yeah. But now the, let's come to this most recent, I guess, of the social issue docs that you've been a part of, which is this one called The Empty Chair in a an HBO documentary that premiered at Sundance called Jim, the James Foley Story. What was your first introduction to, to the story of James Foley? My first introduction to that story was when I went to Bamako, Mali, in Africa, to record for the Virunga song with Salif Kaita. This and is We Will Not Go. Everyone told me not to go. You know, at the time, Ebola was on a huge, you know, outbreak there. The front page of the New York Times was kidnapping at an all-time high in Bamako. And... My wife was like eight months pregnant, you know, something like seven months. Something. And all my 
crazy friends that I could almost always count on for like the outer space adventure all shut me down. They're like, are you, you're, you're out of your mind, bro. I'm not going there. Like, that's crazy. And I would ask my photojournalist friends, what's the story? Is there, is it really dangerous or is it not really dangerous? And they said a lot of it is like Western interpretation of what's going on. You have no idea how far. So the Ebola is breaking out more in northern parts. That would be like saying, I'm not going to go to California. I'm not going to go to New York because I heard they have earthquakes in California. <laughs> you have no idea how big the continent is there right. and how far, like, you know, when they say these per- people are getting attacked in this village here, it, it's, you know, days and days and days by car. And no one even has cars. Yeah. And then my wife's like, you, you got to go. You got, you got like, this, like, you know, it's Yusu and it's the, the movie was so powerful. And she was like supportive. And I remember I actually wrote like a handwritten will like the day on the, I was leaving for the play. Cause I was like, I don't know, this is crazy. Like, I don't know what happens over there. Some kind of, I had like a, a driver that was like a photojournalist friend uh, had recommended me and they were like, oh yeah, but uh, they gave me all these instructions about how to leave the airport. Cause it's like a war zone when you're leaving the airport. And I was like. I don't know. I mean, like, you know, if you live in the light and you try to be positive, you know, the goodness will protect you. And I was just like, I'm just going to go for it. I remember like waking up on the plane because I flew to Paris, slept at the airport for a few hours and then got on the plane from Paris to Bamako. And I kind of woke up and I saw, you know, they had the flight map. And it's not like when you see the flight map, you know, going here where it's like, London, Ireland, you know, it had all the names that you we would only read about in the news. Iraq, Israel, Syria, Libya, Bamako. This one, I'm like, wow, this is, this, I'm really, I'm out there. Because I'd never been that far before, all the way over there. And I remember going up to the flight attendant. I was like, you know, pardon, senor, you know, monsieur. <laughs> you know, I don't really speak French, but, you know, so sorry. And and he said, yeah, you know, un petit peu, a little bit, you know. Listen, I'm, I'm going to Bamako. I have a recording to do. How far out of the hotel would you say is, un, you know, how far out is unsafe? And they were like, I wouldn't leave the hotel. I was like, what are you talking about, man? And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, look on the plane. He's like, do you see any other white people on the plane? You're the only person. You're not like, you know, it's not like safe for you here. And I was like, no, like thinking like this is, you know, this is just like some even he's corrupted by the 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 fear. And we land and all of the customs agents, they're in like those like kind of E.T. white hazmat suits and they have like a thermal gun and they're they're X-raying like every person two by two to see if like it's like 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 predator, like if it's all glowing here. To, to, to like signify that you have uh, Ebola virus. I'm like, dude, this is nuts. Like what I, I thought that like I turned to the director because he was with me at Orlando. And I was like, dude, I thought that well, he's like, I don't know, man, this is I've never seen anything like this before. Like, you know, because he's been going back and forth to Africa to make documentary all the time. And we had a, you know, great recording with Salif and it was really magical and people were great. And, you know, he was like, you know, I remember one night he's like, you know, where's your passport? I was like, I left it at the hotel because that's what you always do when you go to Europe. You leave it at the hotel. And he's like, dude, you can't you can't leave your passport at the hotel. You need your passport, man. Like, that's like our only way out of a bad situation. If you, you know, if, if, if something happens, and I had it the next night. And I remember we were leaving the studio late at night. Uh, a Jeep comes careening over, cuts us off, like, you know, slams on the brakes. The driver, they jump out, like tap machine guns on the thing. They're screaming. 
And I was like, wow, this is, this is insane. What were they after? I, they just like, they wanted to, they were like, they, I guess they were some sort of like army group or some sort of militia group. And they just wanted to know what the hell we were doing there and like why. And they were like looking at the passports and all this stuff. It's a crazy story because Orlando had to leave. The driver was like, do you want to go re- meet Malik Sidibe? It was one of my favorite photographers. He was very sick and he's an iconic photographer. I was like, Orlando, we have to go see this guy. We're going to go to the studio where they shot all the photos. And he's like, I can't stay. And he's like, you should stay. You should go. And the driver will take you. And I was like, it's, it's, that's, that's, that's pushing your luck too much. You know I mean? I feel like that would be when something would happen. Like I don't, I don't speak any, you know, Orlando almost speaks fluent French. I don't speak French. Then it's like, I'm just wandering around the streets of Bamako by myself. Like, and I was like, that's, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I can't, I, I just can't rationalize it with Sarah at home, my wife. We end up leaving and I get back to France and that that night was when the photo was released of Jim. The being uh, uh, beheaded. The, yeah, of the orange jumpsuit with the, the, the guy in black standing next to him. And I was like, it, I, I, like I was just, and, and the strange thing is when I got to the hotel, like they had ISIS on the TV. I never heard of ISIS before. No one, you know, in America is not really known then. And, and they're just like mowing people down with guns on yeah. the TV. And I'm like, what what the hell is this, man? And he's like, oh, it's ISIS. You know, like the the, the, the guy, the bellhop guy. And I'm like, like wow, they really they, they really don't like it. In America, they light some candles like when you're going into the room. And like they're putting the ISIS like brutality on, on the thing. I'm like, we could, you know, that we've never seen anything like that. And especially the, the brutality of the murdering on TV like that. They don't, they don't do that over here. That's when I really felt like, wow, that, you know, that, could have easily been me like taken you know that we got pulled over flip that coin that just a different set of people and that's a whole other situation and then Bamako where everyone told me was totally safe practically just like New York several months later ISIS took over the hotel that I was staying at and shot all these people and killed all these people and took all these people hostage Jesus so that really though was your that was your introduction to the James Foley situation. Yes. Sorry, yes, yeah, so it's a very long story. No, but, but that's um, right. I mean, that was... That's how I got connected to that story. And then a year later, a friend of mine told me that he was working on it. And I was like, wow, I'd, you know, I'd love to be involved. I always felt like a kinship to him. They kept showing me footage and, you know, we spoke. And as they were working, working, working. And then ultimately it was, you know, coming on like the end of that summer, you know, September, October. And I was going to be, you know, I was working on themes for the film. I was going to do the whole score, but then they needed all this music and I was running out of time. I had another project and I was like, I don't, I'm, I, I'm not going to be able to do the score for the, for the budget you have and the amount of music and everything. I have another commitment, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to write a song and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, and I, I think this film really, as many of them needs a bridge back and a, and a, and a, and a warm blanket for people to have a moment with this story to collect their own thoughts, reflect on everything that they had seen in the audience and, and have this kind of almost like a spiritual meditation you at, know, the end. at the end. Because that's the last thing we see before, you know, you leave the theater and you're left. And we did not want to leave. This is, you know, not a story that I, I, as horrific as it is, as, as a world tragedy, I wanted to recognize and celebrate the beauty of this great man that, that risked his life and gave his life to help show the world, you know, the civilian casualties of war and the suffering that's going on around the world. And so I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to reach out to Sting. 
And you'd already dealt with him in other. No, he's just things? a friend. We we knew each other through Philippe Petit, and he was a you know had a mutual friend. I would see him from time to time at different events for Philippe or different things that would Philippe would invite me to that Sting was doing. And he, you know, it was always very pleasant, but very like you know you know short and just like hey, nice to meet you, whatever. And then I said, you know, I really would love to invite you down to the studio. And he came down, and I, you know, we were just hanging out, and I wanted to show him this thing. I said, look, I think I think we could really make something special here. You know, there's there's very very few people who could pull this off and and create an environment for that song to provide comfort and hope. And I remember when. He came down and I played him the theme that I had written for the film, the main theme of the film, that I said, this is how I think we could base the song on this entire theme and this whole music here. I was playing for him. He's, he really loved the theme, but you know, we watched the movie and he's like, I, I don't know if I have it in me to be able to access that emotionality. He's like, this is so intense. I'm just not sure you got the right guy. And I was like, well, take this song. And meditate song on it. meaning that you've the, the, created the, 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 the music. melody and the, and the chords. I okay. had you know played it from piano for him. I was like, "Go listen to the melody, see if it speaks to you." And he's like, "Do you think we could get the letter?" And we were talking. You know, we got I asked Brian if he because the letter, the film ends, and there's a letter that James wrote to his family that, and we we thought that it would be incredibly poignant and incredibly powerful to have. It was you know the last message that he you know kind of got out to his family and. You know, we wanted to bring those words to life and we wanted to honor him and his family. You know, we got that letter and we talked about a few different concepts of what a song could be about. But he's just like, I just I don't I don't know. I just need to think about it. And you know, just left. And I was like, OK, well, see, we'll see what happens. And he went home for Thanksgiving and he showed Trudy and they were both crying again. And she's like, you got to find a way. You got to find a way. And they. They had dinner that night because it was on Thanksgiving. Now, remember, Jim was taken on Thanksgiving years before. And now we're here talking about this, you know, film and the song on Thanksgiving. And then he was having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. And he just kind of like everyone was like celebrating. And he was still, you know, very shaken. I wasn't there. He's this is he's retelling me. And he's just has this whole thought of what if one of my children was missing? What would I do? And he goes, I would leave an empty chair for them. And literally 24 hours, less than 24 hours, an email comes in from him the next day, day after Thanksgiving. And, you know, it says Sting in the email. It's just, just, just one name, Sting. <laughs> and the subject line is the empty chair in quotes. And then nothing in the email, just the lyrics that he had come up with. And so... Then at that point, when was the first time your music and his lyrics were combined and you heard it performed? He came over to the studio the following day. Yeah. We explored the different keys. Right. And that was a big thing because this is a very low key for Sting. It's almost at like the very bottom of his range. And you, obviously we all know that he has one of the greatest voices that ever been to music. It's iconic. And we were trying different things. And he's like, I think we really got to settle on the lower register because I don't want it to be about me. I don't want the bravado or the confidence of my voice to distract from the message and the calm and the hope. So I just, you know, of course, as producing the song, I, I want that vulnerability to be discovered in the recording and to have that 
uniqueness. And so I was thrilled and I thought it sounded amazing and just just a very special, unique recording from him. And, and he's made so many incredible recordings. And this is a very, very unique recording for him. So it's it does close the film now. And it also was performed when the film was first revealed at Sundance. You guys both were there in Park City. What was that like to play it for his family life? Yeah, his that surviving was, That was uh, life-changing because of all the other films you mentioned, Scott, like, there are all these giant concepts. Climate change, the war, autism, species extinction. One after the next. Globalization, you know, with Virunga and like, uh, you know, in, in search of, of oil and ravaging the, the earth. But this was about one person. I mean, it's a big story, but it's also about one person. And so when I was there and we're, I'm on stage with him and I look over and his, it's his whole family there, you know. And so then I'm just all decimated because they're all crying, but they're all beaming with positivity and light because, you know, it's this great opportunity to recognize the incredible person that Jim, Jim was and is, you know, his spirit lives on in, 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 in his family and in his nieces and, or nephew and his brothers and and also you know it was incredibly synchronistic because mr foley you know gave us this big hug after the show and was like you know thank you guys so much and we we were just really mostly concerned with honoring the family among among everything I mean, we wanted to give this beautiful moment back to the story to kind of restore some of the beauty of who he was but also, we're very cautious to, to, and concerned to not upset or offend the family in any way. And they gave us this big hug, and they said, you'd have no way of knowing this. You know, the song is beautiful, but Jim's neighborhood bar, where he's kind of gone his whole life with all of his friends, they keep an empty chair there for him with his name on a plaque. And it's like no one's allowed to sit in it and it's his chair. And you guys would have never known that. And we were like, whoa. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's like, unbelievable. It's crazy, you know? And I know Sting talks about sometimes that, you know, some of some of his Jewish friends were always saying, you know, the the prophet Elijah, that's always, you always keep an empty chair. And he didn't, he, you know, he's not Jewish, so he yeah. doesn't know no. that. So it's it's been a profound, life-changing experience to get to know the Foley's, to get to know their strength to get to know their optimism, you know, an unthinkable world-changing event has affected that family. And to this day, they're still some of the most positive, strong, forward-thinking people I've ever met. And it's radically inspiring. It's the story of how you've come to be the guy for a lot of things, but but certainly if you if, if I were making a documentary about something important, I know who I would call for my for Thanks, my music yeah. for it. So thank you very much for sharing your story. Appreciate right, it. Lots of love, man. Thank, thank you. So much. you.